today on Foodstuffs. Brian heads to the largest urban farm in Toronto to discuss what role race plays in food justice. Then Jess takes the discussion of gender and hospitality to the coffee shop and gets her mind blown. One of the things that we realized very clearly from the beginning is that anti-oppression has to be at the core of everything that we do here at the farm. I am really passionate about the coffee industry too, is just because of how progressive it is in trying to understand the issue and then trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Hi, um, my name is Leticia Boahi. I'm the director at the Black Creek Community Farm, and you're listening to Food Stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Food Stuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker, and I'm Brian Goman. In our first interview, we're talking urban agriculture here in Toronto. Brian, you know this world pretty well. What are some of the main challenges urban farmers face? Yeah, I think some of the biggest issues have to do with available physical space and zoning. Uh, The city is obviously very dense, so finding open areas uh, to farm is always going to be an issue. Usually we're looking at sort of small plots on uh, parks and community spaces, We're looking at rooftops, uh, backyards, that kind of thing. However, there's been uh, a push for larger farms that allow for not only significantly more growing space, but also zoning um, that lets them have things like chicken coops. So enter Black Creek Community Farm? That's right. The Black Creek Community Farm is a seven-acre farm right here in Toronto. And just for reference, seven acres, kind of hard to visualize. That's about six football fields of space? Is yeah, just about that, about? which okay. for the city is huge. Yeah, you can imagine nestled in the heart of like a very densely populated downtown Toronto. Um, seven acres is massive. Yeah, exactly. The farm is actually in the Jane and Finch neighborhood of Toronto. Uh, this neighborhood is what the city would call a neighborhood improvement area or NIA, previously known as a priority neighborhood. This is very difficult to keep up with <laughs> for the record. This neighborhood Jane and Finch, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it, but this neighborhood has suffered from just about every kind of classic urban social justice issue. So we're talking about access to food, obviously, Um, just poverty in general, access to services in general. Um, And coupled with all of that is, of course, going to be violence. Um, But yeah, it's it's majorly access of all sorts that you can kind of think of. Exactly. But there are signs now that the neighborhood is starting to turn a corner. There's the city's bringing four new subway stops to the area, which was obviously improve access and transportation. Um, There's development happening in the area. And there's this beautiful farm that's providing new opportunities, connecting the community and exposing people to healthy local food. Okay, cool. So let's listen to Brian speaking with Letitia Boyan, director of the Black Creek Community Farm. Jane and Finch community faces multiple systemic barriers um, that, um, you know, so community members, of course, do not have access to affordable, um, healthy uh, uh, vegetables and, 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 and food. And one of the hardened stroke actually did a study back in 2009 that found that this community pays 7% more for fresh produce, including milk, than Richmond Hill, which is really crazy to think 
about it in a, com- a low-income community uh, that is struggling, it's 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 really astonishing to find uh, this stats out. So I'm really, sorry, just just so people know, Richmond Hill for people who aren't here, Richmond Hill is seen as more of an affluent neighborhood, sort of a suburb. Of yes, Toronto. yes. So um, really, when uh, this project came along, um, it really uh, community members and organizations were really interested in how this project can be part of that problem solving, sort of looking at how this community can deal with food security, food justice um, challenges. Can you talk a little bit about the the farm there and uh, some of the programs that that you're offering and and the kind of people that are participating? So um, to backtrack a little bit, one of the unique things that we have here at the farm is we have a resident council and it's really, really crucial in terms of really community members having a say in terms of how their community space is used um, and, and, and the type of programs that is provided and making sure that the programs are very accessible to the people that are most vulnerable. So with your support, you know, we have a, a seniors program, a seniors recreation program. And last year we run it two days, a Thursday and a Friday. We have uh, a children's uh, program. So we have the farm school and farm camp. So farm school is local schools and schools across uh, Toronto bringing uh, kids here to the farm to, to have fun, but to also learn a, a little bit about urban agriculture, um, giving them a bit of experiential learning as well and really tying that into the curriculum. We also have the youth internship program. So it's a well-rounded program. We take youth who are out of school, out of work, give them um, um, employable uh, skills and experiences. Um, and then we place them with various organizations like Food Share, Chocosol, TRCA. So different uh, groups doing food, uh, working the food movement. We have we do composting too here on site. Right, yeah. That's in partnership with Food Share and Black Creek uh, Pioneer Village. As well, and we're really hoping to vamp that up. Um, we're also getting uh, new resident chickens, and hopefully, maybe a couple of ducks along with that to really enhance the kids program that we have here on site. And um, of course, funding is always a challenge, so we're looking for different ways that we can add uh, more. And you mentioned chickens and ducks and compost. That some of those things are. Um, you're able to do them because this area is actually zoned farmland, right? Because I know that's really sort of an important distinction. What does it mean to have, like, this is a a, a real true farm Mm -hmm. here in the city. What does that mean kind of to to be in the city but on a farm? Honestly, um, I take it from people that come here for the first time, even community members who've lived in this community for over 20 years who didn't even know this site existed. You know, they walked in and they're in shock. They're like, it's like, I'm in Jane and Finch, but I'm in a farm in Jane and Finch. It's really incredible. And, and, and TRCA and the city, I think, have done a really good job of sort of really preserving this site. And it's been a really uh, incredible experience and to have access to a, a land this size in the city. I think it's really, really incredible and allow us to have things like the chickens and, and possibly the ducks um, soon. And what about the experience of farming? Like, say, you're from this area. Had you ever done any, like, farming or gardening before? Honestly, no. Growing up in Ghana, um, I did a little bit of farming with my grandmother. Right, yeah. So we would go out. Farming was different then, you know. You would go out um, to the forest, really, with your family to go farming. We had small gardens, but it's not like 
a garden here. So, you know, growing up in Jane and Finch, I never pictured myself here at Black Creek Community Farm. Uh, I'm not a farmer, of course, I'm the person inside the office, but I've had the privilege of working alongside other farmers and I've learned so much about the environment, the food we eat in ways that uh, are impossible. My children are able to have that experience of learning like, where does our potatoes come from? No, you know, and, and it's really interesting sometimes talking to kids who have never, they don't know where their foods come from. They just know you go to the grocery store, you buy it and it's on your plate. But then to come here to experience, I had a group of youth a couple of years ago and we did a program here. And after everyone is like, when are we getting dinner? Are you gonna order pizza for us? I'm like, you know what? They got some stuff out in the field come with me to the field. They came with me. First, they were all rolling their eyes like, what is she talking yeah. about? We got to the field, you know, we harvested some carrots, some onions, some stuff, and we came inside, we cooked some rice, we made stir fry, and they ate it, and everyone was like, I've never tasted carrot like this before. I've never, like, everything tastes so different, so fresh, you know? And I feel like this is a, the way to really, if we want our kids to live a healthy lifestyle and to really be involved in environmental movement and, and sort of the food movement, one way of doing that is really engaging them in the growing of food. And they will make that changes themselves uh, versus me going into a class and saying, don't eat McDonald's, right. eat the carrot. They will look at you like, thanks, and then walk over to McDonald's, right? So. Right. You talked a little bit about pro, uh, programs that you offer and sort of the, the, the people that you see coming through. I'm wondering how you see um, those, whether it's kids or adults, sort of going on from this somewhere else. Like what opportunities or what, where do you see these, these people going? So maybe I can talk about the youth internship program yeah, yeah, because uh, we had a group of youth ranging in age from 18 to 26 uh, who came here. Uh, most have never done farming ever in their life. And, um, and, and sort of at a point in their life, they're trying to figure out where to go. It's like, where do I really fit in? And I remember we had one youth um, who really took farming very seriously. At the beginning, he was very skeptical, but then he worked alongside one of our uh, farmers, Damien, who really uh, worked with him. And, you know, he started reading books about agriculture, learning a little bit about landscaping. He had a little plot of land that he was also working at, and he was trying different techniques and different ways to red weave uh, weeds and stuff. Like, it was really, really cool seeing how he transitioned to then saying, you know, at the end, like, I know what I want to do. You know, I, I think I want to get into um, uh, urban planning or, you know, like I want to I want to go to school. I want to I want to get a bit more education on this kind of stuff. So most of the things that we tell the youth is that, you know, if farming is not really your thing, we do more than farming. You have to learn about marketing. You have to learn about business planning, community engagement, uh, community development, because this project is not just about growing food, but also how community members are at the forefront, sort of taking on leadership roles. So there's various things that people can learn through um, uh, urban agriculture and, and to branch off into different career paths. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. When you were first sort of, uh, you got the, um, the lease in Everdale's here, and I know there's a couple other tenants here as well, but for you guys, when you started 
designing your programs, uh, knowing this this community, what sort of went through your minds and what were those discussions like in, in sort of tailoring programs for this, this community? Honestly, one of the things that, you know, Everdell learned from the beginning of the onset is that we cannot do this project without really looking at um, how race plays a role in food in general and, and, and sort of looking at how we can dismantle racism within the food movement because if you look at the trends right now, there's a lot of young uh, uh, white, uh, maybe middle class uh, um, uh, people who are involved in food um, um, and, and, and in sort of urban agriculture most dominantly and, and, and so people of color who have a much harder access to land, right? Like it's much more difficult for a person of color to gain access to land. It's a privilege that Everdell, a white rural organization, got the lease to this land in a community like Jane and Finch, which is, you know, um, very diverse um, and also low-income, uh, dominantly low-income community. So. Um, one of the things that we realized very clearly from the beginning is that anti-oppression has to be at the core of everything that we do here at the farm. If that's not at the core of it, then you know um, we're not really doing a service to the immediate community and to the uh, community uh, into the Jane, um, the city of Toronto. So really, we realized that you know we we. Like, for instance, are we making sure that in terms of our hiring practices, we're not just hiring people of color, low-income people, for the field work in terms of the actual farming work, but that it is a project that looks at um, making sure that when we say community members are leadership, maybe you're looking at community members having leadership roles within the organization. You're looking at community members having leadership roles in terms of the farming as well, but also... Uh, making sure that how much percentage of the food that we grow, like we are in the uh, Ward 8 um, of the Black Creek community, which is the lowest in terms of the city of Toronto's um, Toronto uh, poverty reduction and the urban heart is the lowest, uh, it has the lowest equity score. Um, it's the poorest, to put it more bluntly, is the poorest in the whole city of Toronto. So you can't have a project like this, grow produce and then sell it to Yorkville folks. Right. You know what I mean? So we had to make sure that at least a large percentage of the food that we grow here goes to um, the Jane and Finch community. And of course, uh, it's very challenging for a project that, you know, we've received a good chunks of money um, from Trillium, from Western Foundation, and now from uh, George Weston Limited. But we still do not have core funding. Um, so it's sort of like this crazy math of like, how do you grow uh, good food for low-income communities and be sustainable and still pay your staff a fair uh, living wage? Um, and it's a, a math that doesn't quite add up, but it's uh, something that we're also looking into to see how um, uh, we can make this project work with the support from all three levels of government. I think that food, farming, um, urban agriculture needs to be at the forefront of, um, of all funding coming from um, um, uh, government as well. I think about this project, I think about that sort of phrase that, you know, the right place at the right time. I think we've established this is the right place. Why is this the right time? 
I think it, it, it has always been the right time. It just never got the kickoff that it needed. <laughs> um, I think it's the right time right now. There's a lot of buzz about urban agriculture, about food security, food justice work across the city. I think the farm has also supported other farms and other gardens starting up across the city. What we need right now is our politicians to get on board uh, because food is a very important issue. We have high rates of diabetes, obesity in the Humber Downsview area. It's, it's astonishing to learn about the obesity rate and, and the lack of uh, nutritious, affordable food. So I think it is the right time and, and it just needs the right kind of support to really kickstart something big. And I think Toronto can and should be one of the leading uh, cities in urban agriculture. Um, um, you know, it, people don't, Chicago, um, uh, Growing Power in Chicago is another great project. I think the city of Toronto could be more than Chicago, you know, with the right type of uh, support to get people going. Thank you so much. No problem. No, I really appreciate it. Thank awesome. you. Thank and that was Brian speaking with Letitia Buen, director of the Black Creek Community Farm on site. This is refreshing, I have to say, to hear all of this. And it's, yeah, absolutely necessary to see a community kind of take it into their own hands and um, address the needs of the community directly in a meaningful way. Yeah, but- it really is a sort of a connection point for that community. And we're saying, like, there are so many issues that this neighborhood has faced. And then this is obviously not going to solve all of the problems. No. But it really does address... A lot of a lot of issues, you know, issues about food access, about mm-hmm. uh, you know poor nutrition or malnutrition in some cases, uh, employment opportunities. Just getting kids to think about like you don't have to be a farmer, no, you, you, but you could be. I mean, but certainly. also you, you know, just getting you to think about your your future exactly in, in like a different way. I didn't know what urban planning was until I was in university. So just planting that seed, figuratively, literally, but planting that seed, kind of from such an early age and just having a kid fathom that as a job and have that many extra years of getting to ask questions to ensure that this is the path that they want um, and kind of, I don't know, it just makes complete sense to me that this is only going to be a beautiful, helpful thing for this neighborhood and the ramifications are going to be much, much beyond um, just the access to healthy vegetables. Again, a good idea just keeps growing naturally. Um, You can kind of tell that the money aspect is the issue at the moment. Surprise, surprise, as with um, a number of these sorts of programs. But um, And that's something we have to figure out. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's something like where we can see that, again, the positive effects are going to be felt probably for generations. Exactly. Um, But as, uh, as a result, there's not always the immediate this is why this is good. Yeah, the payoff. A, like, uh, if you look at it on paper. So this is an area that needs investment. And um, really the only way for a program like this to survive is through government funding. Like mm-hmm. They have corporate partners, and that's great. Mm-hmm. But as Leticia says, they don't have core funding. Yeah, but uh, undeniable when you kind of link these dots – it just keeps giving a, a program like this or a, a space like this, seven yeah. acres like this, is amazing. Yeah, and no, it really is. It's that a is a, a gem thing. in the middle of the city that absolutely needs protection. So we can only hope for the best then.
So I met a woman named Sam Lee at the Women's Hospitality League, the event we featured on our last episode. Um, She is the roastery manager for Pilot Coffee here in Toronto. Um, As you may know, Brian, I am pretty new to the coffee world. Uh, I've only been drinking coffee for about a year. Uh, So this is going to color the perspective that you hear from me throughout the interview. Sam wound up at the WHL because she and some of the other women she knows in the coffee industry in Toronto have been noticing sort of a gender divide in the coffee world happening in real time. This instantly made sense to me. Um, If you haven't picked up on it by now, I kind of have some strong beliefs as far as seeing things from a systemic perspective, uh, like specific groups routinely being left out of progress and success, et cetera, et cetera. This can't be much of a surprise by now. No, really? You might have just heard me talk about Black Creek. Anyway, all this to say, when I took a bike ride to the East End with my roommate and former barista friend, Madeline, I was expecting a conversation about a young industry, trying to head off sexism at the pass. And while that is the nature of the discussion, the re- the resolution that we come up with at the end of this blew my mind in a way that I haven't been able to shut up about for a few days since our trip to the roastery. Okay, so this is Jess speaking with Sam Lee, the roastery master at Pilot Coffee in the East End of Toronto. Also featuring my amazing, lovely roommate, Madeline Hales. Yeah, like what's so interesting now about the specialty coffee industry is just how scientific we are Mm -hmm. and being able to just analyze every little detail there is, like, it can range from <clears throat> temperature setting and tasting notes and, and whatnot. So it's like that's the... Like m- taking into account every single variable that goes into making yeah. a cup of coffee and playing with each of them kind mm-hmm. of? Okay, mm-hmm. that's cool. And an example of like an awesome coffee shop in Toronto that's quite innovative with their brewing technique is Early Bird, mm-hmm. which Madeline used to work for as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was really fun to work there because there's so much, like, all of this cutting-edge coffee tech Mm -hmm. that's pretty crazy. I think the thing that blew me away the most was, I can't even remember the name of the machine, but it, like, measures the exact amount of, like, solids that are actually extracted from the coffee. It's... TDS. TDS, yeah. I don't remember what it's... A refractometer. A refractometer. (laughs) So we'd, like, (laughs) brew a coffee, and then you'd put, like, a little bit of the coffee into the refractometer, and it would tell you exactly how many... How much, like, actual solids were, like, taken into the coffee when it was made, Mm -hmm. which can, like, inform you as to, like, the balance, the flavors, all of that stuff. You want to, like, hit a certain level. But crazy things like that, that it's getting just so much more complex. And... It is a scientific thing, just sort of like in the food world, there's like this like chemical cuisine or like, I think... Molecular gastronomy. Molecular gastronomy. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That same idea that you can bring like the science into it and there's so much more complexity there than you would initially think Mm -hmm. when it comes to like, it's just a coffee, but it's kind of so much more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I am so naive. This is what I'm learning. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, as far as making a name for yourself in the coffee world, what are the various avenues that are possible for someone who wants to move up either monetarily or just notoriety-wise mm-hmm. in this kind of era of, of this new coffee culture? 
Um, well, for me, I started as a barista and then sort of just worked my way up from there. Just people being super persistent and interested in the coffee industry will get you really, really far. Competitions would be another gateway into it as well. What is a barista competition? Yes, so the barista competition is um, an organized event where you get baristas from all around the world to uh, compete for 15 minutes and that's where they go and pull four shots of espresso, four shots of a milk-based drink and four shots of um, a specialty drink that has their has coffee in it. Mm-hmm. Um, like is that the way to kind of quickly accelerate your name and gain respect? Um, in this industry, is that the only like is that the most obvious way to elevate? Or I think so. Like in the um, if you want to hit into the mainstream market, and if you don't know or are familiar with the coffee industry, it's definitely um, an avenue for you to understand everything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the participants that we do see are male. Mm-hmm. Um, we rarely, well, it's not that we rarely, but I think it's just that there are more male participants than there are female participants mm-hmm. for these competitions. Yeah. Is, is it more attractive to men as a style of, because I think of cocktail competitions, which is a world that I'm slightly more familiar with, mm-hmm. that's male do- dominated as well. And I'm curious if the women want to be in the competition or they want to be at the same level as their peers and they think they have to do that in order to gain that respect. Mm. What does that make sense to you? Yeah, so yes, sort of. Um I think like I guess like I'm struggling with this question too just because um I do see an imbalance mm-hmm. and I want to understand why that is the case. Mm-hmm. You know, um whether or not it's because uh you know, people, the, the barista competition is playing to a particular st- type of strength, and um, is it uh, because male baristas are, have that type of strength versus female baristas? Like, it starts at a societal level, like, they're confident in, or they know that they're supposed to show confidence in this particular way Mm -hmm. and they've been reinforced that way their whole lives and here it is again manifesting this way and then the women, their female counterparts have not been reinforced in that way over their lifetime and so they're not as comfortable. Yeah, this is is the question (laughs) question du jour or of the era that we live in. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting moment. So yeah, how does that look for you? in knowing the imbalance, because you were saying it's not only in the competition, it's also where the coffee comes from, there's more men, agriculture, that makes some sense. Um, But then all the way up the chain to, yeah, Mm -hmm. like the people who are kind of uh, dominating the conversation, is that fair? I think like for me, there is a gender imbalance for Mm -hmm. sure in the coffee industry, but it's not as pronounced as like, all the other hospitality industries Yeah, because when you were mentioning this to me, I was thinking of, I walk into a coffee shop before I walk in the door without having thought about it too much. It's 50-50 in my mind. I'll be served by a man or I'll be served by a woman. But mm-hmm. that is so surface level. So we're mm-hmm. talking about 
all of the steps that lead up to that. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's it's more of like just understanding um, why that's the case, and I think it's more of like the root cause in our society and like the gender issues that um, we are constantly facing on a daily basis, whether or not we know it, um, and like we said earlier on like the specialty coffee industry is still quite new Mm -hmm. and yet um, you can sort of still see the gender imbalances there and that is sorry one of the reasons why um, I'm so passionate about this this situation or sorry this topic topic yeah Mm -hmm. Um, but the other reason why I am really passionate about the coffee industry too is just because of how progressive it is in trying to understand the issue and then trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. Go ahead, Madeline. Yeah, oh, I was okay. just gonna say, like, yeah, it's cool that it's an industry with its roots in this progressive world. So, like, its foundation is built on something that's open enough, open-minded enough, or like contemporary, yeah. like aligned with contemporary thinking that. All of these ideas are very easily integrated. Yeah, it's true because when you think about where we all first had the conversation of fair trade, coffee is the first thing that comes to mind. Mm, yeah. Um, and globalization and being mindful of, yeah, what's happening in the countries that you're receiving something from, um, instead of mindlessly just like guzzle, guzzle, guzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, I was thinking about that earlier, that that relationship with the farmer um, and all of this fair trade stuff, the fact that that is, was part of the coffee industry um, or the modern coffee industry, I feel like that really informs actually like a the awareness industry. Uh, yeah a larger awareness just across like all like a broader spectrum mm-hmm. so if someone is mindful and thoughtful and caring about those things in general then how could they deny the women <laughs> amongst them the opportunities exactly. and like the support right there should never be the reason a reason why you should have gender as uh, as part of your reasoning behind things right? mm-hmm. um, we're not creating all these barriers intentionally or unintentionally and mm-hmm. just being able to understand what everyone wants and, mm-hmm. and valuing mm-hmm. the rainbow of <laughs> strengths that people can have in every shade um, but that's that's it. It's just appreciating that everyone has something to offer and that mm-hmm. it should be um, valued as much as the things that have been traditionally valued across all of these industries, um, service in particular, right? Because there is the performative aspect, there is the confidence aspect, but then there's also the, like, nailing it. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, just being really good at your job being super personable being super because mm-hmm. you're taking care of people right so yeah, yeah. that is at the core of it and is not an oversight or it should not be an oversight um, that's really really foundational to hospitality in general so mm-hmm. very cool so that's exciting when are you going to have a little 
host a little <laughs> hangout for the ladies. Uh, so um, a bunch of the female baristas and I um, have penciled in a date for this event. It's June 2nd at uh, Dark Horse on Spadina. Amazing. So anyone and everyone is welcome to come and it's just really going to be super informal. Um, we're hoping to have beer and pizza and <laughs> just like ha have an open discussion about coffee. Amazing. Mm -hmm, cool. June 2nd, 8 o'clock, Dark Horse, Spadina. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for opening up my new eyes to the coffee industry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks, Madeline. So that was Jess speaking with Sam Lee at the Pilot Coffee headquarters in Toronto's East End. That was, uh, I mean, we've been talking about it, like you said, <laughs> sort of nonstop since that interview. Mm -hmm. And... You're right. I mean, I never really thought about it before, but w what really stuck out to me was how coffee has really been the thing that connects us with um, a lot of these things that are very familiar to us now. Like, what is the conditions of the farmer? Mm -hmm. What is fair trade? Like, yeah. this was really, I mean... I don't know if you could hear it, but it was like the light bulb went yeah. off. Yeah. And as soon as I started thinking about fair trade... And the way in which that has spread out, not only in food, but in basically made you aware of globalization. They're at the forefront of important discussions about labor, about, um, you know, working conditions, all of these things. So, of course, this is if they can't do it, I'm scared. If they can't have a meaningful, supportive, thoughtful conversation around looking out for their coworkers, and in this case, it's women, um, then yeah, it makes me a little nervous, but it makes me also super, obviously, if you can't tell, like super excited about um, this moment. And I am excited for this event on June 2nd, mm -hmm. um, perhaps. It's well, I think you guys mentioned that too, that uh, perhaps uh, competitiveness is more of a male trait than female trait. Yeah. But there's really nothing that's stopping women from being the well, ultimate yeah. uh, uh, roasters. Is that the right term? Right? Or just baristas. It's baristas because right. it's um, um, if you choose to t make this your life and take uh, this career to the next level it's facilitated by making a name for yourself in these places. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that naturally, sure, you can challenge yourself to match the norm. Um, and I think that that's part of the discussion for, for Sam and um, her female coworkers and um, female industry peers. But um, I'm curious if there's just like another forum of, of – Proving yourself and therefore growing an audience that you can then parlay into a customer base at your own shop or something along those lines. You know, like there's a few different avenues, it sounds like, for for making more money than a single uh, barista wage. But um, I don't know. It's it's that's the whole that's the whole thing. This is a brand new um, area and it's growing and it's exciting and the conversation is happening Um in the States already, and now it's time for it to happen in Canada and for for us to kind of harness this progressive attitude on all fronts to benefit coworkers. Coffee drinkers. Coffee drinkers. For us to all 
have a better cup of coffee at the end of the day. And that's it for another episode of Foodstuffs. I just want to take a moment to thank the amazing Sam Lee uh, from Pilot Coffee in the East End of Toronto. And I need to thank also Madeline Hales, my roommate and lovely friend, for taking a huge trip across the city by bike with me to visit Sam. That was a real treat. Thanks, guys. Thanks to Leticia Boahan from the Black Creek Community Farm and also Gavin Dandy from Everdale for connecting us. Big thank you, as always, to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam from CIUT. We love you guys. And thanks to you for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Foodstuffs Life or by searching Foodstuffs on Facebook. We are on the web at foodstuffs.life. You can download the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher or any other podcast app you could possibly think of. And you can always stream us on SoundCloud, of course. I'm Brian Goldman. And I'm Jessica Walker. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you back here in two weeks. That was loud. Ah, 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 ah. Better.